0: All states in the world, large or small, are cities of heaven, and all people, young or old, honorable or humble, are its subjects. Mosey. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone for coming in and listening this week, and uh, if this is your first time, welcome. I hope you enjoy Uh, please feel free to go back and listen to our back catalog. And if you are a continuing listener, welcome back. So, uh, probably going to be a little bit shorter of an episode this week, at least definitely compared to last week's. Um, But we had a lot to cover then, and we still have a little bit to cover now. So, um, without too much ado, I am going to go ahead and dive into uh, the, the kind of... Culmination of our talk about East Asia. Um, but there is one thing I did forget to mention uh last week and I wanted to kind of bring it up uh for this week. Um when talking about Jihau, which uh was one of the pelagong sites, or possibly its own culture, you know, again that's one of those things debated. um, that They did find residue for uh, the oldest found alcoholic beverage that could be chemically analyzed and broken down. Basically, they could see what the recipe was. Um, At least that was true as of 2017. I believe the porridge and beer found at Gobekli Tepe was analyzed and proved in, I think, 2021. But again, Jihao was the oldest first, and it may still be the only one that they have the exact kind of breakdown for, but uh, the Jihao Brew uh, was a mix of rice, uh, wild grapes, honey, and hawthorn, um, and I'll talk about some of those uh, ingredients when we get to our domestication episode, specifically grapes. Um, China isn't particularly known for grape wine, uh, at least in the past and into the modern day, and part of that is due to the nature of their grapes. They grow a little bit better at higher altitudes. Um, and for whatever reason, the taste in China tended to do, uh, be a little bit closer to things like, um, uh, plum wine, um, and, uh, things like that, but, uh, that stuff we'll dive into in the future episodes, so, uh, just wanted to bring that up. But for now, though, I want to kind of talk about, um, who the Neolithic populations of Southeast Asia and East Asia were and how they relate to um, modern people living in the area and a lot of this is going to be based on some new DNA studies by Melinda Yang out of the University of Richmond in Virginia uh, and her article which is a genetic history of migration diversification and admixture in Asia. And this was published in January of 2022, Um, so you you are free to look it up on your own. It's a very interesting article, very deep dive, and it even covers places that we have talked about and will talk about that are kind of outside uh, of East Asia, um, and we'll get into that here shortly. Um, And uh, as always, when we talk about DNA, please bear in mind that future surveys and discoveries may drastically change some of this. Um, The study itself is built off of earlier work done in, I think, 2010, 2011. Um, But before we continue, I do want to go ahead and give another refresher about haplogroups. A haplogroup is a population of humans who share a common ancestor. Now, I understand that's a very broad term, Uh, but when discussing uh, excuse me when discussing human migrations and stuff like that um, there are two types of large haplogroups that are studied Uh, the first is the mitochondrial dna haplogroups which trace female ancestry and y chromosome dna haplogroups which trace male ancestry these groups are all lettered and numbered to keep track of what population is where, when, and whom they descended from. And though they're usually kind of referred to as the last common ancestor, they actually contain all prior ancestors in the result, or at least all prior common ancestors in the result. Um, so again, this just think of this as a DNA test for a population rather than individuals. Um go back to our one of our very first episodes in fact it may have been our first one uh, we have mitochondrial eve she is referred to as l1 uh, her female descendants who became the last common female ancestors of the various african groups were labeled as l1 through l6 and l3 is the last common female ancestor uh, ancestor for everyone who left africa now, there are cases where descendants of one of these groups later intermarry at a large scale with descendants of another group, and this can cause confusion that has to be worked out by comparing, you know, as many additional DNA sources as we can find, and archaeology, and, you know, things like that. Uh, but as time has gone on, things generally get clearer, and probably will continue to do so. Now, uh, let's get back to um, the people living in mainland Southeast Asia at our timeline. Um, and of course, they are descendants of the initial migrants into the region. Um, and this initial group moved into Southeast Asia uh, and then eventually split into a number of subgroups um, that moved to the north. And... Uh, Probably due to the Austro-Asian populations already occupying, uh, you know, the islands to the south. You know, the people that would eventually become the the Aboriginal uh, peoples in Australia and Papua New Guinea and places like that. Now there are those that remain in this area and occupy what is now, you know, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, mainland Malaysia. And uh, the Hawa uh, Ben Hien are descendants of this group. Uh, and you can go back a couple episodes and refresh yourself on them. Um, so they are generally staying in this initial area. Now, uh, you also have a group that Yang refers to as uh, Guangxi ancestry. And uh, Guangxi is the coastal province of China bordering Vietnam. Uh, Now, this uh, population was found by an individual, um, or its DNA was found in an individual who lived around 8500 BCE and uh, continues to exist in this general region and hunter-gatherers living in the region as late as 4000 BCE. Um, We know that because sets of remains have been found dating to those periods. Uh, And then... There are no other DNA sources, at least that have been found, occupying that region. Now, no remains after 4000 BCE have uh, share that ancestry. In fact, uh, no populations living in the region today or neighboring ones have been found that are at least direct descendants of these people. Um, What caused this to happen, we will dive into. I think next season we'll probably get into speculation on that. Uh, But just keep in mind that, you know, uh, it's hard to say exactly what happened, but it is something we will try to suss out, I guess, for lack of a better term. Now, another ancestral population to discuss uh, is the Fujian ancestral population. Uh, They are occupying modern Fujian and Taiwan. Uh, They will make up a large portion of modern Polynesian ancestry. Or it might be more accurate to say that they will are the modern people kind of in Polynesia and those areas will be a mix of Fujian ancestry and another lineage that uh, Yang refers to as uh, Australasian. Lineage, and uh, this refers to kind of the um, the peoples who primarily contributed uh, to um, well. Let me rephrase. So there's the Australasians; uh, they you know contribute to populating uh, the South Pacific Ocean, New Zealand, uh, Papua New Guinea, places like that, and of course, and Aboriginal Australians, but. Of Course, the areas where the Fujian and the Australasians uh, overlap are you know different from where you know the Aboriginal peoples in Australia end up, so you kind of have to take DNA from modern populations to know you know what percentage they bear from what side of their ancestry. Um, so basically, not everyone that has Australasian lineage will have Fujian but everyone who has Fujian ancestry will probably have some level of Australasian ancestry at least uh, in areas they colonized. their homelands probably not um, just because they'll have other uh, ancestry mixed in especially in places like um, Fujian and uh, Taiwan but we'll dive into that a little bit more specifics, of course, at a later date. Uh, next up, we have um, the Tibetan um, group. Now, um, the individuals tested to establish this ancestry don't actually appear in the archaeological region uh or in the archaeological record in that region until about 1000 B.C. And we know that peoples were living there far earlier than that, though in, again, small numbers, or at least comparatively small numbers to other regions. So the tested individuals were from a separate population to the west of the next group that we will talk about, and that's the Yellow River Ancestry Group. And there's no doubt in my mind and I think even in the results itself, that the Tibetan group and the Yellow River Ancestry group had strong connections to each other. Um, though, given what we know about you know, uh, Tibet's topography and ability to support larger populations, uh, I imagine that they were under pressure from their neighbors. Uh, in addition to having you know positive contacts, they probably had some some rough connections as well. Um, but again. That's more for us to talk about in the future. Then we have. What is known as the Amur River. Ancestry group. These peoples are tightly linked to. Ancestors of. Some northern Chinese peoples. But also the various step nomads. Of the far east. Like Mongols, Jurchens. Things like that. But um Or I should say peoples like that. But uh, the Yellow and Amur River peoples are also a mix of populations from the north and west that we will be talking about more in the next set of episodes. So, for what is now modern China and the rest of Southeast Asia, we have essentially uh, four primary... I'm sorry... Uh, Five primary groups. There's the Tibetan. There's the Yellow River group. There's the Guangxi, the Fujian, and uh, the Halbanian in Southeast Asia, uh, minus Burma. And uh, for that, of course, Burma might not have been very highly populated, or at least uh, does not show up in these genetic studies. So, um, yeah, so we have those four large groups. And in the future uh, that we'll get to kind of when we start next season, we will have essentially four um, major language families occupying these areas. Now, it's important to keep in mind that these families are highly debated uh, and I'll go into that in, in just a moment, but it's not to say that there are not there there are not other language families uh, even in the region today. Their languages most might not be well documented enough to kind of classify, and it's also possible and more than likely that there are some language families that are in this area that just did not survive to the modern day. So. Please keep this in mind. This is an incomplete list. I cannot stress that enough. Uh, and I don't know why I said list like that. but um, So, you have uh, the Sino-Tibetan language family. You have the, uh, the Kra-Dai uh, language family. Uh, then you also have um, the Mong-Mien language family. And, of course, the Austronesian language family. Now, depending on who you ask, these are all one super family. A lot of Chinese uh, linguists. um, And, indeed, other other linguists too, not just Chinese. um, A lot of Western linguists at one point or another. Uh, did kind of classify them all as one large family, however um since I think the nineteen forties, a lot of other uh explanations have been put forward for some of these families um so China is kind of trying to hold on to this idea of a larger you know genetic relationship between themselves. And all of their peoples, and there is some. I mean, we just talked about it. There are four broad DNA groups that, um, in China specifically, there you know there has been generations of intermixing. It's not to say there's not. It's just that you know their idea of their language family is a little skewed, um, or at least that's the popular consensus. Maybe they're right, but I know most most linguists do not agree that they are all together anymore. Um, but yeah, so you have these four large families and they don't hundred percent line up with the regions kind of put forward by, um, Yang's, uh, DNA study. Uh, though, uh, it's pretty close. It is pretty close. Um, now, for when these language families emerge, again, highly, highly debated, but, uh, I believe, uh, the Sino-Tibetan language family is considered to be the oldest, and I think, um, there are some who claim it could be as old as, uh, 6,500 to 6,000, possibly a little older, possibly slightly younger, it's, it's hard to say, um, But I think most most people I've read have the Sino-Tibetan family emerging mm, sometime around 5,000 BC. So it's something that's gonna kind of emerge there. Um, Kra-Dai and Mian, on the other hand, these do not emerge until much later. Um, what they replaced in those regions, it's hard to kind of um, it's kind of hard to speculate on. We don't have much in the way of, uh, obviously, written records to compare. Um, and then other people's, you know, who write down these other words, uh, as we've discussed, Chinese lends itself to kind of overwriting these things with um, kind of those uh, semantic uh, uh, things we talked about when it came to things like place names or, like, hacker, haiku. Um And again, that's not something that's unique to Chinese. It just helps because of their writing system uh, that they have a lot of options to be able to do this. Um, But yeah, so just keep all this in mind. Uh, But it would not surprise me if um, that these, uh, the four modern, or I'm sorry, the three uh, non-Sino-Tibetan language families, if they did not replace some earlier set of languages. Um, Kra-Dai obviously came from somewhere. Um, Mong-Mean came from somewhere. And then Austronesian came from somewhere. Uh, Now, uh, you may ask, well, you know, why does a language family emerge? Uh, Why do languages diverge over time? And, you know, that is obviously a very deep question and is something that has been debated uh quite uh quite a lot for quite a while uh it is you know obviously one of the key founding cornerstones of the entire discipline of linguistics uh it is truly hard to say and i know that's probably not satisfying but um i think uh i think we can make some i think some reasonable guesses uh though keep in mind my guesses come from a kind of a historian's background not necessarily a uh actual linguistic background but it's important to remember that through most of our history uh, humans have lived in very small groups again most of the time you wouldn't have more than 20 people around you people you know family things like that um you would, of course, have periods where you would meet up with extended families and, you know, you you your numbers jump from 20, 25 people to, you know, 100, maybe 150 people. Um, it's easy when you're doing this to to kind of keep your language simple. Um, and, of course, um, any changes that happen to your language over time are probably small and of course, fairly universal. Um, You're not seeing things that are out of the ordinary to yourself or to your uh, immediate family that you don't have words for. Um, And if you do find something new or create something new or experience something new, um, your word would quickly spread through to your your family or your extended family, your clan or tribe or whatever you want to call it. Um now as we begin to settle down and form larger societies, um, the, you know, it's harder to keep track of things like that. Um, there is a theory that you know a human can't keep track of more than you know 150 people. That's the actual absolute maximum size a single individual can keep track of on a deep personal meaningful level. And then after that, you know, you kind of lose track. Um, That's why um, people think, one of the reasons why people think more advanced language and record-keeping abilities evolve, like why we came up with things for writing, because you don't just have 150 people you're keeping track of. You're you're probably having, you know, four times that at the very minimum, and then of course you're having to keep track of all these people's things as well. So, you know, not, and not just their, not just whatever they're, they're creating, but whatever they're consuming, whatever they are doing. Um, so that's one of the reasons that you probably see these more sophisticated or at least more complicated uh, family or languages emerge. Uh, so just keep this in mind. And this is a process that's beginning to happen not just in China, uh, but also in uh, India as well as the Middle East and parts of Africa these are all uh, going to really kind of kick off as these larger um, groups kind of begin to coalesce so that is something that is uh, you know going to take place essentially for the rest of our show here Uh, and it has again been happening or will be happening uh, as we go forward the reason i'm bringing it up now is because there's a lot of there's a lot of different groups in china china is a huge place it's very diverse and that's not something that at least in the west that we really think when we talk about this region and there are you know people who don't realize just how uh how large china is and how again diverse because you know for whatever reason uh well some you can probably imagine uh people don't necessarily look at chinese people and understand why they're different and they don't hear the differences in their language um and I will say, uh, for something like a Mandarin, uh, that is a language that's very widespread, but it's also not something that has happened organically. There's been a very large push through Chinese history to, of course, standardize their language and their writing and things like that. So, you know, uh, that's something that will come into play and something we'll talk about. There's a lot of try- types of um, Control exerted on the Chinese language that you maybe don't see in too many other places. Um, There are some that would definitely give uh, the Chinese state a run for its money when controlling their speech systematically or centrally as opposed to letting it evolve organically. Uh, But as we'll see, that's not the exact uh, easiest thing to do, and there are always unintended changes or consequences of these types of actions. Um, so that is something that we'll continue to dive into as we get to this region in future seasons however i do want to kind of go over some of the big theories when it comes to the sino-tibetan languages because again it's very possible that this process is starting as um as we're kind of uh ending our season in this region so there are kind of right now i believe three popularly held theories about um how sino-tibetan emerged um there is one put forward by i believe the name is uh, sargert and he's not the only one, this is actually a group, but he's the name that I remember reading in the note for it. Uh, and this has been put forward in around 2019, I think is when the last time they um, published, or at least the, the time it was published initially. So, um, it was, yeah, it was Sarget et al., uh, dated language poly, uh, oh god, <laughs> pardon my uh, pardon my pause here people, I've... Uh, Dated language philologies uh, shed light on the ancestry of Sino-Tibetan. Uh, now, his uh, theory, or I should say their theory, uh, because uh, Sarget is a woman, excuse me. Um, I believe it's a woman. It's either, I think it was Lauren Sargat? Uh, when i read the actual document i should have pulled it up but um so essentially this group kind of held, holds the theory that um that the sino-tibetan language evolves right along the yellow river probably from uh the late Xishan cultures or possibly the immediate successor to the Shisan, which again we'll talk about later but this group quickly spreads out out to the uh, west and then to the south of uh the yellow river uh basin so they kind of go up river get to the plateau the mountains and then they spread down through uh the shangjiang or the yangtze uh and then they continue to go down these various um river valleys and then from there you kind of um develop uh uh tibetan uh, Burmese comes along from that initial kind of uh, breakaway from the Tibetan and then you know, you go from there. The next um, the next uh, kind of hypothesis I need to speak about is the one it's the uh, one this one's from 2005. Uh, it was proposed by, I believe Von Dryam was the name. I think that's what I have terrible handwriting. Um, Yeah, I believe it is um, Von Dryam, is the name. Now, this proposes that there was a um, that there was kind of a central Mesolithic or, uh, you know, late uh, Stone Age, Neolithic type. Group and that they were located in kind of the, uh, the region where the, um, Chongjiang or the Yangtze meets the Tibetan Plateau. And then you have various groups, uh, move out from there. So it's, it's the homeland, um, where, uh, you have this, this kind of central, uh, Sichuan, essentially the, that's the area of china is and then uh, you have a group that goes to the north uh, east and that's the pelagong Sichuan culture you have a group that goes to the north and that has the um uh another set and that will eventually become the tibetan languages then you have a group that goes to the uh south uh west and these will be the people that occupy um, Nepal and Bhutan and of course they'll continue interacting with the Tibetans and then you have a group that leaves and goes to the uh, south um, and south uh, east and they'll of course go to Burma and uh, they'll get to the kind of the Shan foothills um, And again, that kind of ties into um, some of those languages in those areas being tied to uh, Sino-Tibetan, um, and we'll go we'll go into that there uh, in a little bit. And then uh, finally, we have one that was proposed in uh, 2009 by Blinch. and essentially uh, he argues that there is just a uh, a single kind of uh, group in what is now Bhutan, uh, right on the southern edge of the Tibetan Plateau. And then they move north uh, into the Tibetan Plateau. And then from there, they spread out um, in form the Sinetic languages. Um, and of course, the other language families like Hong Min, uh, they come from this Tibetan, this early Tibetan migration. Uh, and there and he also proposes that uh, there are, um, I guess, relatives, you would say, of this uh, Bhutan group uh, who were occupying uh, what is now modern-day Bangladesh and Burma, and that they're the ones who spread those languages in the south. So they're not actually directly uh related to uh the t- tibetan part there but they're sister or brother languages of tibetan and they kind of keep that close contact and uh, share words and things like that whereas the um the Hmong mian and the sinetic speakers kind of develop a more uh kind of a close relationship uh as they move in and of course um the Sinetic speakers are also influenced by the Altaic, which is not one of the languages we're going to dive into t- dive into in this episode, but that's one kind of in the, um, or there's one that's kind of um, proposed to have existed uh, in the, like, the Mongol steppes and um, places like that. Now, which of these do I, I guess, most closely buy? Um, personally, I favor the, uh, Von Dryam hypothesis, um, and the reason for that is it takes into account, um, the greater diversity, uh, in the uh, Sino-Tibetan branch, um, you'll find it actually, uh, kind of in what is now, um, kind of that far south um southwest of China in the Sichuan area um there's a lot of just small languages along that kind of area um so I think there is it probably was it probably developed somewhere where the um I guess the headwaters of the uh Yangtze or Shangjiang kind of uh Begins to fall from the Tibetan Plateau, uh, and then it spread out from there, uh, not just to the, you know, the Chongqing area, but also the Yellow River's head, because uh, they kind of, you know, there's a there's a gap uh, where they form, but they both form along the Tibetan Plateau uh, where it meets, kind of, um, I guess what what you consider the more flatter. Or slightly less elevated areas of China, so I do think that that's a perfect home region right there on that plateau, right around uh, Sichuan or um, uh, uh, what's the province? Uh, Kung, uh, Yunnan, Sichuan Yunnan area. That's that's a perfect place for um, you know for a bunch of languages to pop up from a single source because of all the the valleys and hills and rivers and lakes that kind of thing there's a lot of isolation you can have that, which would help the development of these languages uh and then you probably wouldn't see them become radically different until they started living radically different lifestyles that's another thing that you know you need to take into effect um People don't necessarily have the, um, or they, they may keep the same words for simple things, things like axe or, you know, uh, arrow or bow, you know, it would change too much for those things because they're, you know, they're something everyone would have, they have this common frame of reference, but then as you move out of this kind of home region, you start developing agriculture, you start having to keep track of, um, days and larger numbers you know you develop these things slowly over time um, but honestly um, just because I favor the von dryam um, you know explanation uh, does not mean I think it is that much more accurate I just think it's the one that makes the most sense to me based on what my understanding of linguistics is and how you know they develop over time. Um, I doubt that any of these uh, theories are 100 percent correct. I'm sure that there's been stuff that's been misclassified or miss you know misattributed. Uh, and again, there's a huge gap in the archaeological record in China, uh, which is something that they are working on. They are you know constantly you know finding new things there because they have been paying closer attention to their distant past so this is one of those areas I feel like we're going to see a lot of changes uh, in the record as time goes on so um, but yeah that's kind of what my opinions are on that um, we will of course talk about these other languages and how they're developing uh, I think in the next season at least for a uh, the Austronesian and the Kra-Dai. Uh, I think it is up to debate on the Hmong Mian. Uh, that one actually doesn't show up until much later. Um, but I do think there's a lot of stuff that we have to look forward to for this next season uh, in this region. Uh, so I hope you all uh, can keep track and remember and if not, I hope you come back and re-listen to these episodes. Um, but yeah, so I think that's that's kind of a good good point. Um, this episode's way longer than I thought it was going to be, mainly to me rambling. I hope I made sense. I hope my thoughts were calm and collected and I didn't confuse you and what I was trying to say. Uh, but yeah, um, next week we will talk about um, Korea, Japan, and probably get into the uh, Far Eastern steps to talk about the peoples living there. And then we'll of course go back uh, closer to the Urals, which is, of course, is the barrier between Europe and Asia. And then, um, yeah, we'll swing by and hit the uh, Australia and talk about the Aboriginal people there at this point in time. Then we'll talk about Europe and get to the Americas. So um, we're getting close to capping out Season 3 here. But if you have any questions or comments... Uh, please feel free to let me know you can reach me directly at waradrevpod at gmail.com i had a very nice email last week and um i hope i answered your question Uh, i didn't ask permission to say the name so i won't Uh, but uh, you can also reach me via direct message at twitter uh, which i will include the link to the twitter account you can also comment on my youtube channel any video feel free um I have been also playing uh, Far Cry Primal on YouTube uh, live, um, and of course you can go back and watch old episodes. But on the new episode, if you come while I'm, while I'm playing, uh, you can feel free to drop in the chat and ask a question there. Uh, but yeah, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your week. Thank you all. Goodbye.